invite you to open your Bible with me, uh, and we're going to go to the book of James this morning. I, uh, I do that every Sunday, don't I? Invite you to open your Bible. I hope that you bring your Bible with you. Um, that's your tool. That's the sword of the Lord. And uh, the reason we, we always go to Scripture is because really apart from the Bible, I don't have anything to say. I don't, there's nothing that I can say that is of any eternal value or worth apart from the Scriptures. But I also do know that um, as we look to Scripture, that's where God speaks. That's, that's His Word. So I invite you uh, to look with me in James chapter 1 as we consider the last message in this series of overcomers on overcoming temptation. Um, there is a war going on within us as well as believers, and so you and I are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit produces new affections within us, new longings and desires, and at the same time, the flesh, we're still subject to uh, the sins of the flesh, and so there's a battle. And many of you could raise your hand and say, there are certain sins that, that beset me, certain sins that you struggle with and wrestle with, and James uh, writes here and to give us some insights on how to overcome temptation and besetting sin. So I'm, I invite you to read with me in James chapter 1, starting at the 12th verse, and then we'll pray together. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. For of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence. And we ask for you to speak to us, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in us and through us as you teach us how to overcome temptation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, Mindy and I were at a home of family here in the church, and we were on their property. And next to where we were standing, there was a field, and in that field was a large, brown, spotted cow. 
And it got our attention as it started walking towards us, and I especially noticed these long horns on this cow. And the person we were with mentioned that over the years, she had given birth to many calves, not her, the cow. <laughs> and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this story, so I want to preface it by sharing the only cows I've been around was just for a few period, just a few years, not very, so I'm certainly no cow expert, but my uncle had a 200-acre farm in Michigan, had some milk cows. They looked like the Chick-fil-A cows, and they were Holsteins. So I'm no cow expert and didn't realize that female cows had horns. I didn't know that. I shared that in a staff meeting. They all laughed, thought I was just ridiculous. But I didn't know female. I knew deer, bucks have horns. I didn't, but I, and I just thought that was kind of the way it was in the animal kingdom. And uh, so didn't know that females. Now, if a person wasn't too informed about cows, it's entirely possible that they might purchase a female cow when they thought they were buying a bull, unless they had enough wherewithal to look underneath. So the point in me sharing that story is to make a point that good, accurate information, truth, serves to protect us. Likewise, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, possessing knowledge, knowing truth is valuable for our protection. In John chapter 17, it's known as his high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying for his disciples then and for all disciples to come. And he is asking, interceding to the Father for his disciples. And he says, Father, I pray that you would sanctify them in the truth. And he went on to define what truth is. For your word is truth. Jesus is praying for us as his disciples to know his word, to understand what is true because he knows that truth protects us. Truth keeps us from being deceived. Do you remember when Jesus also said in John's gospel, and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Free from what? Free from the power of temptation. Free from the power of sin. The writer of our text, James, who was a brother of Jesus, post-resurrection, James finally recognized that his brother Jesus was the Christ, and later James becomes an apostle and eventually a pastor. And like any good pastor, he wants to protect the flock, to provide information, information that would protect them, and so he provides this text. And in this text, James explains temptation. He explains how temptation works. And so the aim of the message this morning is one of sanctification, helping you and I to live a life that pleases God, to protect us from being deceived, to keep us from sin, and to keep us from doing sinful things and encountering, experiencing the consequences that always come with sin. Have you ever seen someone sitting bent over with their elbows on their knees and they're 
palms spread out over their faces, and you can tell that they're terribly upset, overwhelmed with emotion. Well, in some cases, that represents a picture of someone who has sinned, realizing the consequences, filled with, overwhelmed with the emotions of remorse and regret. Have you ever been there? A Bible word that refers to living a life that's clean before God is sanctification. It's not Sanctification is not just cleaning out the house, but once it's cleaned out, we fill it up with new things, new furnishings. It's the work of the Spirit. And so the idea is that you and I want to rid our lives of all sin, to refrain from sin, to clean, to be clean before the Lord, to live sanctified, holy lives before God. And one of the keys for that to occur is knowing truth. And in this case, in the text, Knowing the temptation, knowing the truth is the process, the pattern. How does temptation work? So if we're going to overcome temptation, we need to know how it works if we're going to experience victory. So what is temptation? All of us have been tempted. What is temptation? Well, it's temptation in the, in the Bible is a word that kind of refers to what's going on between the ears, in our minds. It's where it starts, being in a position where you mentally have to make a choice. You can either yield, choose to do something that is wrong, that is sinful when you're tempted, or when the temptation comes, you can resist it and choose not to sin. And so it's temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it's a place, it's a position of being mentally induced to sin. The Bible describes when we are tempted, it kind of describes that sin is knocking at the door. Sin is pounding. If you will, temptation is the big bad wolf knocking on the door, little pig, little pig, let me come in with an intention to hurt us, even to destroy us. So let's be clear, temptation in and of itself is not sin, but it puts us in a position mentally that might lead us to sin, and we've all been there. So what is the process? What is the pattern of temptation? How does it work? James, if you keep your Bible open, you can see this right in the text, and James describes five elements, a pattern for temptation. This is how temptation works. And I want to say right at the beginning, and James makes this clear, that you and I agree that God never, God never entices us to sin. God never leads us into sin. Look at verse 13. James, writing to his church, says, let none of us as his followers ever say, ever think, ever conclude that when temptation comes, and notice when, he doesn't use the word if, because it's certain to come. When temptation comes, when you and I are tempted, we are never to think that that temptation came from God. For God would never do anything, would never tempt us. God would never bait us, never entice you and I to sin. I remember a conversation this is many years ago with a Christian brother who got himself involved with a, 
another woman other than his wife, and he made the statement, and I'll never forget, I just don't understand why God would bring this other woman into my life. And the fact is, James is clear, God had no part in that ordeal. You see, not all things in life are just because they happen. Not all things are foreordained by God. God didn't bring that woman into his life. Someone might read the instruction on, that Jesus provides in Matthew 6 on how to pray and conclude that Matthew contradicts what James says. For in Matthew chapter 6, you remember Jesus taught his disciples, and when you pray, follow this outline, and then later down in verse 13, and you pray, and you ask God not to lead us, not to lead you into temptation. It sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Well, if God never leads us, if God never entices us to sin, then why would Jesus tell us as disciples to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation? Well, we need to understand what Jesus is saying in that verse. And in Matthew 6, 13, the request that we are making unto the Lord, lead us not into temptation, is not one of logic. It's a reference to a disciple, to a follower, to their desire. That, that request there is a desire. It's a longing of one of us as Christ's disciples to refrain from sin. God, I have a longing. I have a desire not to sin to be pleasing unto you. A good paraphrase of that might be, oh God, keep me from temptation. Don't let me be confronted with temptation. Don't let me be deceived by temptation, nor be drawn into the schemes of the evil one through temptation. That's the request. And so there's no contradiction between James and Matthew. James is saying God will never do anything to lead you, to cause you, any of your children, any person into sin. And just a brief comment about temptation and testing. Temptation and testing. God will put us into positions to be tested. God will put us into positions to be tested, not to lead us into sin, but to develop our faith with a goal for our faith in him to get stronger. An example of that is in Matthew chapter 4. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. He's just been baptized and he's getting ready to launch his public ministry and so leads him into the wilderness. Why? Why does the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the wilderness? To be, I believe, is to be alone with God. To be alone with the Father in prayer, in communion before he launches into ministry. But while he's there, it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and once there he was tempted by the devil to sin. And then you can read through those temptations that the enemy brings towards Jesus to attack him. We too can come under spiritual attack by the enemy but James says in the text, the majority of the temptations that you and I encounter are not going to come from the enemy. They may. There is spiritual warfare is real. But James is saying the majority of the temptations that you and I encounter are because they're coming from our own desires, from our own senses. Isn't that what he says? He said, let each of you, when you're tempted, 
Not saying you're tempted by God. He doesn't tempt you. But each one of us, verse 14, are tempted when we are drawn away and enticed by our own desires. Fleshly, that fleshly desire that's still at work within us. And so when you and I are tempted by the flesh, most all of the temptation that you and I are going to encounter comes from two senses. Two senses. One is by what we see, and the other is by what we feel. By what we see and by what we feel. Both appeal to our emotions and longings. We will be tempted to yield to our emotions versus submitting ourselves to what God says in his word, the truth that he prayed for that would sanctify us and protect us. Can you, can you think of a time in your life when you made a decision based upon your emotions and your feelings instead of truth? It's a growing issue in our culture. As our culture knows less and less truth, not only do they not know truth, our Our culture is becoming more and more convinced that there is not absolute truth. Absolute truth doesn't even exist. There's no absolutes. Black, white, it's just subject to whatever you think, whatever you feel, whatever you long for. That's fine for you, but there's not truth. And so as we drift from truth, what God says about us, what he says about lifestyle, what he says about decisions, what he says about choices, as we drift from truth and become ignorant of truth, then people more and more are making decisions and choices based on feelings and longings and emotions. And I want to say to you, brother and sister, many of our feelings and longings are perverted. They're of the flesh, but people are making choices based upon longings and feelings instead of truth. And they're deceived instead of the facts of Scripture. And so one of the things that we need to recognize is when we're tempted, it would be good for us to slow down and pause and think and assess what is happening to us, to view view every choice, every decision through the lens of Scripture. What does God say about this choice? What does God say about this decision? Am I going to build my life upon emotions and longings and feelings, or am I going to build my life on truth? Let me give you some examples of this from scriptures. Go back to Genesis. Classic story of how temptation worked in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, And God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight, it says. Genesis 2, it grew pleasant to the sight, to the eyes. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 3, it says, And the serpent was there, all crafty, working to deceive And it says, questioning God's word, producing doubt, working to bring about disobedience to God's word. And in Genesis 3, 6, it says regarding Eve, and she saw that the tree looked good for food and that it was pleasant to her eyes. 
and a tree that was desirable to make one wise. In other words, she started having feelings and emotions and longings based upon what she saw, what she felt, and made a decision based upon those two senses, seeing and feeling, and made a decision to take the fruit from the tree, put it into her mouth, and eat. And for the moment, I'm sure it tasted good. For the moment, I'm sure it was savory. Only soon after that to feel remorse and shame and guilt that she had never felt before. And paid a price ruining her relationship with God, bringing about sin to the human race and driving her and Adam from paradise. James, as a loving pastor, conveys to his flock the first sequence in the pattern of temptation is attraction, attraction. And it will be stimulated with the eyes by what you see. And it can be anything. It can be anything. Something that we doesn't have to always even be a bad thing where we can be attracted to do something, to buy something we shouldn't buy or do something. So it starts with attraction. The second Second pattern is the attraction will lead to deception. Look at verse 16. My beloved family, do not be deceived. Verse 14, he says, we'll be drawn away, lured away, enticed by our own desires. Have you ever heard someone say, never trust a person who likes to fish? (laughs) You know, the one that they caught that was 16 inches long somehow becomes 24 inches Fishermen, fisherwomen, think about it. It's kind of a deceptive sport. Because the whole premise of fishing is to lure the fish, to deceive the fish, to entice the fish. Ask any fisher person to show you their box of lures. And they'll open up the box and perhaps show you hundreds of lures, different methodologies to deceive the fish. Yeah, I know, the preacher knows nothing about cows, and now he's meddling with us fishing. <laughs> Point is, you and I are just like fish. We're just like fish. We're easily deceived. Too quick to bite, too quick to satisfy our fleshly appetites. Ooh, that looks good. Oh, I want that. And so we bite, led by our eyes, governed by our feelings, and we yield to temptation. Think about it. I guarantee you if that fish could sit up in the boat or stand up in the bank and see what you see and know what you know, they would never take the bait. They'd be protected by the truth, by the reality of what's getting ready to happen to them if they bite that bait. I want to provide a comment just here very quickly to every one of you in this fellowship who have the privilege of teaching the Bible here, whether it's to two and three-year-olds or kids or teenagers or young adults or older adults, senior adults, you have the privilege of ministering the word in this church. Your goal in teaching is not to just present facts Your goal in teaching is not just to get through the text and to explain the Bible. 
Rather, when you teach, when you minister the word, it's always with an end in mind. That through the scriptures on God's behalf, you are making an appeal from the scriptures on God's behalf, partnered up with the Holy Spirit with an aim. And that is the aim, the goal is for the Holy Spirit to minister through the taught word, through the word, to create in the hearer new affections. New affections, change. That they would respond as God speaks and convicts and draws and works in them to produce new affections. That God would move the hearer from the ear gate to the heart gate. That listeners would be moved by the power of the Holy Spirit and new feelings and longings would replace fleshly feelings and fleshly longings. You remember the psalmist, as the deer, as a deer pants for living Water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, O God, the living God. Jesus said, how blessed are those who will follow me, who will hunger and thirst for me and for my righteousness. And he promises, for they shall be satisfied. Pastor James is saying the pattern of temptation begins with attraction. It leads to deception and then to preoccupation. We see, we feel, we're enticed. And what we see and what we begin to feel settles into our thoughts. Thoughts begin to take over our thinking. Thoughts that begin to consume us and fascinate us and we become preoccupied with. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, a man named Cain becomes angry at his brother. And his angry, jealous thoughts begin to preoccupy him. They take control of his mind and God's aware of it and God confronts Cain and says to Cain, why are you so angry at your brother? Why has your countenance fallen? Cain, if you will repent, you can be forgiven. But Cain, if you choose not to repent, sin lies at your door and sin's desire is for you to rule you, to master you. Cain became preoccupied with the temptation and the temptation took control of him and failing to give heed to God's word instead yielded to the temptation, planned and plotted out his sinful action and took his brother's life. Pastor James says this is how temptation works. It will start with attraction, feeling it'll move to deception, lead you to preoccupation. Let me just say this for a moment. In a congregation this size, some of you here this morning, you hear me. Some of you this morning have got things going through your head. You've become preoccupied with something that you have no business you have no business being preoccupied with and you are at a position of making a huge mistake in your life. Attraction, deception, and preoccupation. Entertaining, entertaining a choice, a decision that has the potential to ruin your life. 
and to cause all kinds of consequences and destruction. Which leads to conception, attraction, deception, preoccupation, and conception. Look at verse 16. And it says, when desire is conceived, conception, conception, it brings forth, it delivers a birth. What's the birth? Sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the Bible says, in the spring of the year when kings went out to war, David stayed home and became idle. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And with too much time on his hands, he sees a beautiful young woman bathing herself in the morning sun. And the attraction takes over. And instead of slowing down and thinking about his family and his kids and all of his other wives, Instead of thinking about God and his calling and his position and his name and his reputation and the consequences, the Bible says, his sight, the lust of the eyes and the deceptive feelings begin to stir and preoccupation takes over. The image of that young woman bathing in the sun takes control of his thoughts. And then misusing his political position and power, he sends out messengers to have that young woman brought to him, and the sin of adultery is conceived. Let me ask you a question. When you think those messengers from the king, the most powerful man in the nation, when those messengers came to Bathsheba's door, that the young woman was in any position to say no. And she goes, and David rapes her and uses her to satisfy the desires of his flesh and then gets rid of her with no intention of ever seeing her again, no intention of anyone ever finding out Because when desire meets opportunity, conception occurs, which leads to bondage, attraction, deception, preoccupation, conception, and bondage. You see, it's the nature of temptation and sin to rule us. Sins enslaves, oftentimes without us even realizing that we're in bondage. David had no idea how his sin, and I probably didn't even think about it. How did his sinful act with that young lady, how did that affect Bathsheba? How did that affect Bathsheba's mother and her dad and her siblings? How did his sinful action affect his servants who knew about him? How did it affect the parents of Uriah and Uriah's family? How did David's sin affect the ability to spiritually lead God's people from that point forward? Didn't think about it. He saw, he felt, he wanted it, 
preoccupied it, made it happen. And for the next 12 months, the reason I, you know that he had never, he had no intentions of ever meeting Bathsheba, being with her, just used her and sent her out because for the next 12 months, there's no contact at all. He's just kinging around, playing a game, while the whole time he's in bondage to sin. And entirely by the grace of God, he's confronted with God's word. And entirely due to the grace of God, He's convicted of his sin and feels shame and remorse and regret, which is a good thing. He cries out to God in repentance and very slowly begins to realize the magnitude of his sin. And he prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. I acknowledge that my sin is always before me, and I acknowledge against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice again. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51. Let me conclude. All three persons, Eve, Cain, King David, and others, yielded to temptation. Each one made decisions based upon what they saw, how they felt, instead of slowing down, seeing things as God sees through the lens of Scripture, and they experience devastating consequences. Temptation is not sin, but it's the big bad wolf pounding at the door with the intent of causing us to yield to sin. What can be done? What can be done to overcome it? What can you and I to resist temptation? Well, first, we can equip our arm ourselves with knowledge. Truth protects. Understand how temptation works, the pattern of temptation, slowing down, seeing things as God sees, comparing it to his word. That's why, listen, that's why time alone with God in his word is so important. To slow down, to spend time with God in his word, listen, it will protect you. God will protect you through truth, through his word. And understand what you and I feel and our emotions and our feelings and our longings, those things are not to define us. You, you and I don't want to make life choices according to our feelings. Listen, if you and I did everything we felt like doing, I wouldn't be up here today, I'll tell you that, if I felt like doing it, and you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. I would urge you first to memorize, become familiar with how temptation works. Attraction, deception, preoccupation, conception, and bondage. Arm yourself against yielding to temptation with knowledge, time with God in the word. That's what Jesus did. Go back to Matthew 4 when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Do you remember how he resisted the temptation? In every instance, he New scripture. He stood on scripture. He stood on truth. 
He was able to do that because it had saturated his mind, saturated his life. Second, you and I can resist yielding to temptation by convincing ourselves that God is good. God is good. James says, every good gift in your life, every perfect gift in your life comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. In other words, he's faithful. And he's good. Every good and perfect gift is from, because he's good. Do you remember, if you think back, To Genesis chapter 3, the basis for tempting Eve was to disguise God's goodness. He's not good. If you obey God, you won't be happy. God's holding out on you. If you'll just go ahead and do this. God doesn't mean what he says. His his truth is is not certain. Just go ahead. He's holding back when you take the fruit and you'll be more happy. You'll be more satisfied. You'll You'll have what you want. Really, it's a denial of God's goodness. Do you know people today who grow up in church, know scripture, know the gospel, they get out 18, 19, 20 years, start getting out into the world, and they're deceived thinking that I'll be happy, my life will be good, my life will be better if I do things my way. Really, it's a denial of the nature of God and his goodness that there's a better way. I know God's word says this, but I'll do this because it'll be better for me. It's a denial of God's goodness. Be convinced of God's goodness. He's a good, good father. And Luke's gospel records that he knows how to give the best gifts, good gifts to his children when we ask him. God, give me only that which is good. And you know what is good for me. I, I was in a hallway the other day with some, some I, don't, I don't remember who it is, one of you, somebody. And uh, they said, you know what, I, I realize that it probably wouldn't be good if God ever dropped a million dollars in my lap. Because I think, I, I'm not sure I would be a faithful steward of it. And, and God knew that I probably couldn't handle that. That was pretty insightful. Be convinced of God's goodness. And then third, we can resist yielding to temptation by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember Ephesians 5, chapter 4, as he begins to apply the doctrine, he says, then walk worthy of the calling. Then in the last three chapters of Ephesians, it's all practical. And one of the things before, he says, uh, going into relationships between husbands and wives and parents and kids and in the workplace. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, be filled, be soaked with the Holy Spirit. See, to, to be filled, to be strengthened by the Spirit because the Spirit of God will produce sanctification in us. You want to resist temptation? You want to be guarded from temptation? No truth, spend time with God. Trust his goodness and be filled with the Spirit. He'll produce sanctification. Let me read to you a section from chapter 13 of the Westminster Confession regarding sanctification. Listen to what it says. Those, referring to believers, those whom God has effectually called and regenerated 
have a new heart and a new spirit created in them and are further sanctified by God's word and spirit indwelling them, the longings of the flesh are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man or woman shall ever see the Lord. Look it up, Westminster Confession, chapter 13. There's a lot more to it than even what I read. The reality is the Holy Spirit will empower you and protect you from sin. Protect you. Sanctifying you, producing within you and I new longings, new desires, where we, more than anything else, that's what Jesus was describing in Matthew 6, 13, where the disciple says, God, I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to yield to sin. I don't want to yield to my flesh. I don't want to surrender to my feelings. I don't want to surrender to my emotions. I don't need to say what I feel like saying. I don't need to do what I feel like doing. The work of the Holy Spirit will guard you and protect you and keep you from sin. New affections. New affections. Spurgeon, he talked about holy affections. New affections that God produces in us. Today is a new day of, a day of new life for us. Overcoming temptation, three things. Know truth, know the word, hide. What did psalmist pray? We teach our kids to say this in Bible school. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Your word will I hide away in my heart, in my mind that what? I might not sin against you. Truth protects Get along with God, with your Bible. He'll protect you. Second, not only protect us, but coming to understand God's goodness and trusting in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God will protect you. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word.